it's interesting that, that we've been saying things like competition and markets aren't always the answer and that the unthinking and rigid application of competitive principles isn't the answer. The introduction of the independent sector in itself isn't, isn't a silver bullet that can fix everything. I think the first thing is that you could have competition just simply within the NHS without any independent sector involvement at all. So we must be careful not to conflate the role of the independent sector with the idea of competition. I think the other thing is that um, I don't really think that anybody's saying at the moment that competition is a silver bullet that can help address all the challenges that the NHS faces at the moment. Even I'm not saying that. And I'm the person who's helping people make sure that the, the competition rules are, are complied with in the system. So I think that everybody recognises that competition is one of the tools that can be used in order to, to make the provision of services better for patients and to make the health service more efficient. What I'd quite like to see is the debate moving on a little bit and perhaps us talking a bit more about how exactly we can use competition as one of those tools to achieve better outcomes for everybody. I wanted to talk primarily about transactions today. I think that, um, just to start with, in terms of who does what, so previously the Cooperation and Competition Panel, um, which has now become um, the Cooperation and Competition Directorate of Monitor, from 2009 reviewed um, transactions in the, in, uh, of NHS providers. We looked primarily at transactions involving community providers as part of the Transforming Community Services Agenda, but we did also look at a number of acute transactions as well. Some of those ones that we looked at and advised were not raising any competition concerns and should be cleared. Whether or not they were a good idea from a corporate point of view is another question that, that wasn't the particular question that we were looking at. So we've had the Royal Free, Barnet and Chase Farm, that one was okay. We had Northumbria and North Cumbria, that one was all right on the basis that the benefits the parties told us they wanted to achieve could be achieved more quickly as a result of the merger as opposed to not the merger. We looked at Epsom, Ashford and St Peter's, Trafford and Central Manchester, Scarborough and York, Barts, Whips Cross and Newham. There we required some remedies to be put in place because we were concerned about possible deterioration in quality of services. We also um, said that a merger between Dartford and Medway could go ahead if the parties gave certain undertakings, again, to preserve the quality of services. And we also looked at a merger involving um, the uh, Nuffield Orthopaedic Centre and the Oxford Radcliffe and found that that transaction was unlikely to raise particular concerns. So the point of, of reading that list to you is just to say that not all mergers necessarily create competition problems. And the, the situation that we have now is that the Office of Fair Trading and if there is a competition issue, the Competition Commission are reviewing transactions rather than the Cooperation and Competition Panel. But the CCP's approach was always based on the approach of the OFT and the CC. So I would say that fundamentally the substantive approach hasn't actually changed. Um, Monitor retains a role and so we will advise the OFT on the benefits to patients that result from these particular transactions. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So sometimes we talk about competition and patient choice as a sort of an ideological concept that's completely separate from what people are actually trying to do on the ground. And in fact, what we're trying to do is essentially ask the question, will patients be worse off as a result of this transaction? As a result of the merger, does something happen? Is there a change in the system that means that the quality of services provided to patients are likely to deteriorate? 
So in other sectors, when competition authorities are looking at mergers, essentially they're trying to ask whether the merged organisations will be able to increase prices as a result of the transaction. In healthcare, we don't really have price competition. So what we're looking at there is, will the quality of services be likely to deteriorate? And the way we try and answer that question is to look at the extent to which the organisations coming together represent alternatives to patients or alternatives to commissioners. If they do represent alternatives, then the idea is that they exert pressure on each other to maintain the quality of services over and above the minimum quality. And then whenever they come together, in the absence of other providers who would exert such a, such a pressure, then quality is likely to deteriorate. So this isn't an ideological question. This is really trying to understand, will services deteriorate for patients as a result of this transaction? And essentially, in its provisional findings on the Bournemouth and Poole transaction, the Competition Commission has said that having conducted a survey of patients, having looked at patient referral patterns, looked at the strategic documents of the organisations concerned, that it predicts that there will be a deterioration in quality. In other words, patients will be worse off if that transaction goes ahead than they will be if the transaction doesn't go ahead. And it's not really a question about the financial stability of the providers. That's to relevant, of course, but the question is, for patients, are they likely to be worse off? So one of the things that we do when we think that patients might be worse off is we look at any countervailing benefits that flow from these transactions, and then we essentially carrying out a, a, carrying out a weighing up exercise where we're trying to get a, a grasp on whether there are particular benefits from transactions that can only be achieved by those transactions that essentially outweigh the risk of the deterioration in quality that we've identified. And the sorts of benefits that we've identified in the past and accepted are things like having more flexibility over rotas. So if you have um, your clinical staff have some capacity and you put the two organisations together, can that capacity be used to do, to do useful things for patients such as cover out of hours um, rotas or weekend cover and that sort of thing? Or sometimes you have two organisations who provide slightly different services and when you bring them together, they're able to provide a service that either of them wouldn't have been able to provide without working with the other one. So those are the sorts of things that we tend to look at. I, I think that in order to avoid the costs and the delay and the uncertainty that we've talked about, the key thing is for people to think early on about what they want to do and to take advice from people who can help them navigate the merger control process in a thoughtful way. So hospitals aren't alone that they don't like having their transactions referred to the Competition Commission. Nobody wants their transaction to be referred to the Competition Commission in any sector. And so generally what people do is they do a lot of legwork early on in order to think through whether what they're proposing is likely to raise concerns. They go and speak to the Office of Fair Trading. I'm also happy to speak to people very early on about the benefits that they think their transactions will have. And then it helps people understand whether they're likely to have a problem or not. And if they do have a problem, then they can identify, is it a big problem or is it just in relation to some services? And then can something be done in order to essentially carve those services out of the transaction so that the rest of the transaction can go ahead? So I think that it would be helpful for people to, to do more work earlier on in order to understand whether the transaction is actually likely to be problematic. 
In terms of speaking to us about the benefits, it really is very important for people to articulate clearly what the benefits are for patients as a result of the transaction and to evidence that as best they can. Obviously, these are prospective transactions that we're looking at, so you can't show that something has already happened, but looking forward, do you have evidence that you think something is likely to bring a benefit to patients? I'll just give you an example of an argument about benefits that, that was put to me in one of the transactions that we reviewed that didn't really help take things forward particularly well. This is the benefit. The scale at which the new trust will operate means it can provide services that will enable the subspecialization and economies of scale required to enhance existing specialist services and develop a wider range of more specialized services. This in turn will mean the development of competing centers of excellence that benefits local populations. With the combined trust, we would provide an effective fourth trust into this competitive environment, thus increasing the realistic choice between providers. This ability to subspecialize through critical clinical mass will also enable the trust to compete more effectively with neighboring large trusts and repatriate some work from tertiary centers. So that in itself isn't, in my mind, a particularly clear exposition of what benefits people think a transaction can achieve. And I think there, more work probably was needed in, in order to, to get there. Just finally, um, we touched on um, reconfiguration and the fact that um, reconfiguration is viewed as more difficult because of the, the merger control rules. And there again, I think it's helpful to think about the type of reconfiguration that we're talking about. So if you're talking about the reconfiguration of specialist services, where you need providers to be providing a reasonable volume of specialist services in order to be able to provide safe and high quality care, then I think organisations are able to speak to us and say there's clear evidence that a certain volume is required in order to provide this specialist service. And if we have one provider of this very specialist services rather than a number of providers, outcomes for patients will be better. So that sort of reconfiguration, I think, is less likely to be problematic because you can demonstrate why it's better for patients. But what tends to happen is then people say, we're putting these specialist services together and we'd also like to put other more standard elective services together as well. And there I think it can become more difficult to make those arguments around benefits. If the type of reconfiguration we're talking about is moving services from an acute setting into a community setting and there's some transfer of the activities of organisations involved that triggers the application of the merger rules, then again, that's not very likely to be problematic because the provider of the community service and the provider of the acute service are unlikely really to represent alternatives for, um, for commissioners or patients before the merger takes place. So I think whenever we're thinking about reconfiguration, it's useful just to talk through exactly what it is we're trying to achieve and to think about whether the rules are likely to be problematic. So I think overall that um, in my mind, the merger control rules can help prevent situations that would create a worse outcome for patients. And I think some of the rigor um, that's required in order to get through the process itself can add some value because it really focuses people to think about what they can achieve and whether that's realistically achievable. So I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. <laughs>